Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Aplastic Anemia and MDS International Foundation continuing podcast series. We're coming to you today thanks to generous support from individuals, donors, and our corporate partners, including Celgene. My name is Alice Hauk. I'm the Senior Director of Health Professional Programs for AAMDSIF, and today we're chatting with Christina Klein, who is the manager of the University of Florida Malignant Hematology Division. Although she's been working in clinical research since 2004, even before she earned her RN, BSN, and CCRC, she is now the study coordinator for industry investigator-initiated and the NCI National Cancer Institute Cooperative Group Studies at University of Florida, as well as Phase One trials. Christina continues to devote herself to the many participants who voluntarily engage in clinical trials, all of whom contribute to making a difference in the lives of future cancer survivors. Welcome, Christina. Hi, thank you for having me. We understand in your short bio that you've been interested in clinical research for 15 years. What first drew your attention to this field? Well, um, it's very interesting that you asked that question. I kind of just fell into the lap of research. I previously had worked at a blood bank, and um, I applied for a position in research that was a temporary position. It was more of an administrative assistant type position. And so I got hired on into that position. And as I began learning my role in um, that office, I started working very closely with the clinical trial nurses that um, were on the hemalignancy floor. And I started really um, just becoming a part of their daily workflow. I started watching their interaction with patients, how they educated them, how they helped facilitate their care with the healthcare team in accordance to protocols that patients were voluntarily participating on. I watched them advocate for patients and really become an intricate piece to the overall treatment of the patient's care um, and their diagnosis. And with that, I was really encouraged by these trusting relationships that were being developed and maintained throughout the course of the care that I started to really develop a passion um, for clinical trials and what clinical trials did. And watching these patients um, voluntarily participate in in these trials, I was seeing how science was helping to provide new treatments and access to novel therapies and, and overall trying to improve quality of life for patients living currently with cancer and for those um, in the future. So I started to um, just really get involved and started to learn protocols and eventually worked my way into um, being a clinical trial coordinator myself, and then went back to school to um, get my nursing degree. And so I obtained my RN and then got my bachelor's. In the meantime, still stayed involved in research. And I did a little bit of time um, on a pediatric um, oncology floor as a um, bedside nurse. And then I went back into the lap of research and started coordinating phase one trials. And it's been such um, an amazing journey being a part of the many lives that I have um, 
been allowed to be a part of. And then also watching certain medications and certain therapies that initially started out in a clinical trial that are now being used as frontline therapy to treat patients with certain types of um, hemalignancies such as leukemias that are able to get them into a remission where they have quality of life. So I developed this huge, huge passion through just watching my colleagues basically on the floor. And um, I've, I've been here ever since, just a patient population. And um, I've just developed a, a deep love and privilege to be a part of this with them. Well, that is a very impressive journey. You've seen it from all levels for a number of years. So we can see why you're, you're so dedicated to the field and to your, your role now. Uh, when did you become interested specifically in hematological malignancies and the challenges that those face, that those pose, excuse me? I always had worked in hemalignancies. So um, initially, that's where I started. And I just, the more I learned about the different types of diseases that can evolve with bone marrow failure and working with our clinicians um, in just how they treat these types of bone marrow failures, I just stuck with this. And um, leukemia actually became the um, leukemia and MDS became the disease process that I actually found more passionate about, and that's where my specialty lies. Um, so I work very closely in trials that are targeting, um, looking at better treatments to improve those types of um, bone marrow failures, um, looking at now through certain genetic mutations that are where we're kind of changing the face of how we treat these types of um diseases by targeting certain gene mutations now and kind of personalizing the um, targeted therapy more for this patient population. I have always been in hemalignancies, um, but I have collaborated some with um, some solid tumor and um, pediatric, just um, collaborating with some of the patient population, but most of my specialty has lied with MDS and leukemia patients. And as you said, the the personalized treatment is becoming the way, it's not of the future, it's of, of the present. And that must be create new challenges for you to keep up with all this new information. How do you do that there in your, in your division? Well, we do a lot of education and we watch a lot of webinars um, through the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. Um, we do, um, there's a lot of education that takes place with the physicians as well. I even see the physicians are learning more about these certain targeted therapies and these certain gene mutations as well. And I have the privilege of working with Dr. Kogel, who is very knowledgeable in, uh, in genetics. And so he does a really good job of educating us so that we can learn about these new genes and um, these new therapies that are targeting those specific genes. And with the bone marrow failure diseases that you see, you have mentioned myelodysplastic syndromes and uh, leukemia. Uh, do you, are there other hematologic-related diseases, the bone marrow failure diseases that you see in your division as well? Yes. So we see a number of different disease types. We work with acute um, lymphoid leukemias acute myeloid leukemias, multiple myeloma, myelofibrosis, 
and as well as lymphoma that has um, bone marrow um, transplant involvement where the treatment now is no longer working for their disease and so now they have to undergo a, go a bone marrow transplant. And then we also have a bone marrow transplant program here, which is to treat a variety of different um, bone marrow failure diseases, including aplastic anemia and sickle cell, to where we basically, it's like you're taking out the old soil and you're putting in the new soil so that the you can grow a new immune system, a healthy new immune system with no cancer cells, hopefully, and then move forward with an improved quality of life. And many of your patients, of course, are participating in a clinical trial or considering enrolling in a clinical trial. Can you explain your role in that process and how you prepare patients to uh, consider a clinical trial and then ultimately uh, prepare them for participating if they choose to do that? Yeah, so initially when a patient is transferred or referred to our center, um, the medical records are reviewed by the doctor, and then the doctor um, typically reaches out to the clinical trials team to evaluate the patient for any potential clinical trials. And this is so that we are um, able to offer the patient all potential options for the treatment so that the patient is able to make an informed decision that is best for them in regarding their care, also their social economic status um, that may be occurring. And so we try, we want to offer them all of their potential options. And so the clinical trials teams looks at basic eligibility, such as disease, the current stage of the disease, their age, and any um, existing comorbidities. If the patient is eligible for any clinical trials, the clinical trials team then communicates and discusses that with the doctor, who then in detail discusses that with the patient along with the standard of care treatments and the potential clinical trial that they may be eligible for. And then if a patient is interested in the clinical trial, the doctor then um, informs us, and then that is when we are introduced to the patient. And when we are introduced to the patient, that is when we begin the informed consent process, which is an ongoing process that takes place throughout the initial meet and greet until they have completed treatment um, on a clinical trial. And with the informed consent process, we discuss with them the um, purpose of the trial, the potential benefit, the intervention, the study procedures and schedules, the risk, the voluntary nature, and then we are ask, answering any questions throughout the discussion. And they typically have a number of um, days to think over, to look at this consent, discuss it with their family members, call us back if they have any questions or concerns. And then when they come back to their appointment, they then discuss it further with the physician. And if they're interested in the trial and all of their questions have been answered, then they would consent to the trial with the physician. And then once they consent to the trial, that's when screening procedures and things like that would start to see if they are eligible to continue to the treatment that the trial is designed um, to provide. And so we do a lot of educating and um, explaining of not only just the types of um, therapies that may be involved in a clinical trial, but also just taking the time to sit and discuss with with patients' standard of care therapies. So one of the um, privileges of being a clinical trial coordinator is that we have time to sit with the patient and, and really listen to their concerns and answer their questions. And 
give them the information to help them make the best decision in regards to their care. And um, so once they, you know, decide that they do want to participate on the trial, um, we then move forward and continue to educate them and step by step, you know, continue to inform them of what is happening next. This is what is going to happen at your next cycle. And these are the days that we'll be asking you to come in and working with the healthcare team to get you scheduled. These are the types of procedures that are going to be occurring. And at any time, that patient decides that they want to withdraw for whatever reason, then we're here to help facilitate that to where we can safely remove them from the clinical trial as well. But the importance of informed consent, it's just, it's so important. It's one of the biggest things that I'm very passionate about because I want to empower the patient to make the best decision in regards to their care. And what do you find are some of the most common concerns or questions that patients and families have in the process of this discussion about clinical trial participation? Many of them want to know, um, you know, why do researchers believe that the treatment being studied may be better than the one being used now? Which is a great question that I always encourage them to ask the doctor too. Why may it not be better? Um, How long am I going to be in the trial? What kinds of tests and treatments are involved? Um, Will I be told about trial results? That's a really common question that we um, um, get asked by our patients as well. Um, Is there someone I can talk to who has been in the trial? Um, They also are, you know, it's really important for them to know what their rights are, to know how do the possible risk and benefits of the trial compare to those of standard of treatment. Some other common questions are related to cost. Will I have to pay for any of the treatment or test? What costs will my health health insurance cover? Um, who pays if I'm injured on the trial? Who helps answer any questions from my insurance company? Um, so those are some um, types of questions that are asked very commonly. And then, of course, what happens if I decide to leave the trial? And I think it's really important for patients to understand that their participation is completely voluntary and that at any time they feel that they need to, that this trial is maybe not um, something that they can continue on, that their participation is voluntary and that it is okay if they decide that they want to withdraw. It also is okay if they decide that they do not want to participate. And that's another, you know, great um, part of our role is that we can help advocate for them If a trial is just a clinical trial just doesn't work with their schedule, with their home life, with some of the things that they have socially going on, we're there to help facilitate that so that they can still get the best treatment possible for the care of, for the treatment um, of their cancer. And with uh, their preparation for clinical trial participation, uh, what are some of the, the things that you look for? Like what are some of the screening uh, procedures that are done to help determine if they are uh, eligible for the clinical trial? A lot of basic eligibility is going to be the status of their disease. Is it a newly diagnosed um, type of disease process? Is it a relapsed refractory disease process? What kind of treatments have you had in the past or how many lines of therapy have you had in the past? Um, We want to evaluate um, the heart to make sure that the heart is functioning 
properly and that there's no abnormalities with um, with your heart. We want to make sure that your lab value ranges are good. Are your kidneys functioning correctly? Is your liver um, working um, correctly? So there's a lot of um, those types of um, procedures that take place. We Sometimes trials may request chest x-rays or scans to be done so we can, you know, depending on the type of um, disease process you may have, like my multiple myeloma patients, we want to look at their bones and we want to see if they have any lytic lesions on their bones. AML patients, we want to, you know, look at a lot of blood um, labs, their hematologic blood um, counts. What's your white blood cell count? What's your neutrophil count? What type of blast do you have? And so there are a variety of different tests that are performed in screening, but overall these tests are performed to make sure that it is safe to move forward with this patient receiving this type of treatment um, for their type of disease. And what are some of the types of clinical trial treatments that you've seen that you conduct there at University of Florida? Uh, And uh, if you could explain just a little bit about the different types that patients may be need to consider at some point in their disease journey? Yes. So we um, actually, our center participates in many different types of clinical trials, ranging from industry trials to trials um, performed from the National Cancer Institute and cooperative group trials. And we also have faculty-developed trials here at the University of Florida, ranging from phase one to three trials, um, some targeting specific gene mutations um, or disease processes such as leukemia, myelodysplastic syndromes, aplastic anemia, lymphoma, myeloma, and other bone marrow failures. When you look into the different phases of clinical trials, when you look at a phase one clinical trial, we're primarily looking at safety. The purpose of the trial is to identify safety in the dose. Um, doses are typically adjusted to determine how much of a drug the body can tolerate and what side effects can emerge from the course of treatment. The purpose of a phase one, though, is not to benefit the patient or affect a cure, um, but what we're wanting to identify is, um, you know, what is, what is the safest dose that it can be administered? And approximately 70% of new drugs complete phase one and move on to phase two. And those are typically performed in a very small population of patients. They are closely monitored, um, appointments, vital signs, ECGs, labs, and to gather this information about how the drug interacts with the human body. And then once that dose is identified, it then can move into a phase two clinical trial, which we're looking at how well does the treatment work. So phase two trials continue to test the safety of new agents based off of um, information obtained during the phase one. And we begin to evaluate how well the drug works against the specific type of cancer. So basically, what is the purpose, the efficacy, and the side effects? How does the treatment work? How safe is the treatment? This is where we're documenting things, all potential side effects that patients may be having, such as nausea, headache, muscle pain, anything that is not part of their baseline side effect. Um, Approximately 33% of those drugs actually complete phase two and then move on to the phase three trial, 
which is then performed in a much larger population. Um, we're looking at hundreds to thousands of patients that could be enrolled in phase three types of trials, multiple sites that could range from the United States and even internationally. And phase three is focusing on learning whether um, the treatment is better than the same or worse than the current standard treatment. And these studies typically utilize a randomization type process, blinding stratification process to where a placebo could be used, but a placebo would not be the only drug that is being administered. No matter what, you would receive some type of standard of care therapy with the addition of an investigational agent or placebo, but you would still receive a standard of care therapy or it could look at two types of arms. Here's a treatment arm with an investigational therapy versus a standard of care arm. And the purpose of these are efficacy and, again, monitoring of adverse um, reactions. Is the treatment potentially a benefit to a specific population and confirming through a large-scale data collection that the treatment is safe? And then approximately 30% of drugs complete phase three and then move on to phase four. And phase four is typically... Um, um, occurs after treatment has been FDA approved and looks at long, long-term safety and effectiveness. Um, we also do some combined phase trials here, which look at phase one, two, or phase two, three, which is a combined design within a protocol that um, enables a, a transition between the trial phases um, and may increase the efficiency in answering certain questions. Um, we also do some um, PI-initiated trials where there are some certain science that can come from the bench in a laboratory and then can be used first in human. And those, again, those typically start off as phase one, but they can be um, developed through our own institution with our own um, physician. Thank you. That was a very clear and comprehensive description of clinical trials because it can be very overwhelming for patients to understand uh, the, the phases as you describe them and also how very long it can take for the process of drug development. We all wish that there were faster answers and uh, decisions uh, made about the, the efficacy of drugs and this process is designed to ensure the, the safety of the patients all the way along and also if if it really is making a difference before it's taken any further. So I'm I'm sure you get questions about that from patients as to why it takes so long, but your description there of the whole the phases and the, the entire process was very helpful to give a some reasoning for why it does take so long. Yeah, sometimes those trials can take ten to fifteen years before a drug is actually approved from the phase one portion. You described PI clinical trials. PI is a principal investigator. Is that the correct term for that, for that acronym? Yes. So that can, as you said, that can be generated by a, a physician in your own institution and in addition to outside groups or collaborative ones that you participate in. Yes. Okay. Um, in all of this, we've talked, of course, about the the role of the clinical trial team and explaining everything to patients and caregivers. What is the role of the caregiver in helping the patient decide if participation in a trial is right for them? And also just throughout the trial, what role does the caregiver play in, in your experience? 
Um, I feel like the caregiver um, plays an extremely important role. Many caregivers help get patients to and from their appointments. Many caregivers um, keep track of when these appointments are and when they need to be scheduled. They help patients um, deal with certain side effects that they may be receiving from dr- from these um, drugs that they may be receiving. If patients are receiving oral medications as an investigational agent through a clinical trial, they help ensure that these patients are taking their drugs on time, that they're following directions at which they need to be administered, whether they're administered with food or on an empty stomach. Do you drink a glass of water? Do you stay away from grapefruit juice? So I almost feel like the the caregivers wear so many hats. They're like the air traffic controller. They just make sure that the patient is safe. And they also help communicate some of the patient's needs when the patients aren't really feeling good. Um, I do see that sometimes patients tend to not always want to um, express some of the things that they may be feeling because they don't want to come off of a clinical trial for some reason. And sometimes that caregiver is there to advocate for that and to share some of that information. And so I feel like the caregiver plays an intricate role in the care of a patient who is going through this journey in their fight towards cancer and communicating and working very closely with the clinical trial team as well as the healthcare team. And making sure a patient is safe and taken care of. So as you said, that is an extremely important role and and difficult for patients if they don't have a a support person or a a support team around them, really, uh, even beyond the clinical setting. Yes. Another question about the clinical trials that you uh, conduct, I understand one of them or some of them that you conduct are related to uh, preparation for transplantation, if that's uh, a possibility for a patient. Can you talk a little bit about those types of clinical trials and what what those are, uh, what the intent of clinical trials for preparation for transplant are? Yes. So we um, participate in the um, Bone Marrow Transplant Clinical Trials Network Cooperative Group. It is um, funded through the National Health Institute. And um, many um, centers within the United States participate in this um, huge um, cooperative group um, trial. And there are many trials that are targeted specifically for transplant and how we can improve transplant outcomes. Many patients who undergo transplant, um, depending on the type of graft source that they may be receiving, which is would you receive a transplant through a matched unrelated donor through the NMDP? Um, Would you receive a transplant with a sibling who might match um, fully or even be a half match? You could also receive a graft source through a cord blood transplant. And so there are many different graft source types that we can treat a patient to prepare them for transplant. But what happens after transplant is that there is um, a condition called graft-versus-host disease. It can be acute, meaning that it occurs within the first 100 days of your transplant, or it could be chronic, meaning it occurs beyond that 100-day mark of transplant. And what it is is when you receive your transplant, your body is then becomes foreign 
to the cells that are infused in your body. Those T cells that are infused say, hey, wait, this is not my body and you do not belong here. And then they kind of like have a little war going on to where your body and your graft source are kind of fighting each other to see who's going to actually take over in the house. And so that is called graft versus host disease. And you can receive that through many different areas. You can receive it um, graft versus host can, disease can develop on the skin where you can develop a rash that is red and itchy and raised. Your um, liver can also feel the effects of graft versus host disease, which is monitored through um, evaluating your liver enzymes through lab blood work. Um, your gut can also um, develop graft versus host disease and patients can develop nausea, diarrhea to um, very extreme um, ranges of, um, of these conditions. And so there are many trials that are targeted to either reducing the, um, the development of this acute graft versus host disease. And so the conditioning regimens at which you are prepared to administer to get you ready for transplant, that is given to actually wipe out your bone marrow and then get your body prepped to have your new, these new cells infused. And so part of that conditioning regimen, um, graft versus host disease drugs can be given to prophylactically prevent severe GVHD. And so there are treatment trials developed to include certain drug regimens that can help do that. Then there are also trials that are designed to actually treat graft-versus-host disease if it is developed in the outpatient setting once you're discharged from the hospital within that 100 days. Um, and there are certain drugs that are, are being developed to help treat that to minimize side effects of graft-versus-host disease. And so graft-versus-host disease is very We've come a long way in how we treat it and how we reduce the complications of it. But at the same time, you still want a little bit of that graft versus host disease because that way those T cells can eat up any mineral residual disease that may be floating around that may not have been completely wiped out by the chemotherapy. So with the bone marrow transplant trials, we have trials that can help treat or try to reduce graft-versus-host disease. And then we also have trials for lymphoma patients that try different types of conditioning drugs to get these patients prepped for transplant so that they can um, have a better outcome once their um, new immune system takes place and develops. That's very extensive, and I, I think that's helpful for patients to understand uh, the options for them in preparing for a transplant and all the different approaches that are available now and that are being, of course, uh, tested in clinical trials as well. But that, I think that's very encouraging that there are so many avenues for them to take now and with with very strict oversight and care at, at a, a medical facility that, that they trust and that, they're, that they trust in speaking with the team if they have concerns. Uh, finally, Christina, we know obviously you care deeply about your patients and you've spent many years in this field and in uh, particularly with an interest in research. What are some of the key messages you would want all patients who are considering participating in a clinical trial or who are in one now to understand about 
their participation and how important it is for the future of bone marrow failure disease treatment? Well, um, participating in a clinical trial is voluntary. And so for those who do decide to participate, um, it is an honor and a privilege to be a part of that journey with them as they give their time and um, give um, all of this information that allows us to collect data to improve um, the treatments for cancer and quality of life for patients. And, you know, uh, there was this chart that I saw a long a while ago um, that in 1975, there were 3.6 million cancer survivors. And in 2016, there were 15.5 million survivors. And in 2040, it's projected that there will be 26.1 million cancer survivors. And I truly believe this is all um, part to research and most importantly, um, to those who were giving and are also still giving of themselves to participate in clinical trials to help win the fight against cancer. And so through our participants that take the time to participate in clinical trials, we are developing newer therapies that can hopefully reduce toxicities and improve quality life um, for patients that are in this fight against cancer. Thank you, Christina, for explaining more about clinical trials for bone marrow failure patients and their families and sharing some of your years of experience in working in this field. And thank you, listeners, for being with us again. Remember, you can find out more about all types of bone marrow failure diseases on our website at aamds.org, through social media, at AAMDS on uh, Instagram and Facebook and uh, other sources you may consult, And also we have uh, an opportunity for you to chat with your peers online at marrowforums.org. We'll see everybody next time. Thank you again for your time.